Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. We knew we were going to be talking about CD packaging. We, Kirk and I were, were talking about um, how the decline of physical sales has also meant the decline of physical packaging. And you just don't get the the cool packaging sort of stuff that you used to get. And the first thing I thought of was this Juliana Hatfield CD I have that is covered in fake fur. It's from her album called uh, Only Everything. And when it came out, it has a cover. It has a, a picture of a buffalo on the front. But they made about a thousand or so copies for radio stations. And it's just covered in fake fur. You can't put it in a... CD shelf or anything like that. But anyway, so that was my first thought about packaging. And then you'd said, well, you know, Andy is famous for creating that wonderful film about how to open any CD or DVD packaging. And we thought, well, let's get Andy on and we'll talk about packaging. So Andy Doe is with us today. Hi, and thank you for having me back on the show. Of course. It's like you don't learn. <laughs> and as usual, Andy is sitting in front of these CD racks that are, what, about six feet tall, maybe about 10 feet wide. You have thousands of CDs in those racks of archaic technology. Well, I mean, you, you think that's the archaic technology. It's only because you can't see the wall of tapes on the other side of the room. <laughs> yes, I know you have a reel-to-reel tape player in there. You've shown it to us before. And my collection of gramophone records. Yes, yes. You, you have humble-bragged to show us your reel-to-reel tape deck. Reel-to-reel was cutting edge back in the day. That's what separated the men from the boys in audiophile clubs, didn't it? Yeah, that was how you knew you were completely insufferable. Yeah. So the, the idea to talk about CD packaging came up a few weeks ago because I was looking – and by the way, raise your hands if you buy CDs. Don't worry. No one will think you're doing anything strange if you're in your car and you raise your hand. I still buy CDs, not a lot, but I've got a few in front of me. I've got some Digipacks, which Grateful Dead's Dave's Picks. We'll explain all these. I've got a jewel case here. I've got another single Digipack. I've got a box set with three little Digipacks. I've got a a box set with cardboard sleeves. I've got some box sets with paper sleeves. And it is interesting how many different types of packaging there are for CDs, but it took a long time for them to get past the jewel case, didn't it? Yeah, and a part of the reason for that is because the jewel case is really good for all sorts of reasons that are obvious and observable to consumers, but also for a bunch of reasons that are, are not so obvious to consumers. So if you're collecting CDs, you want to be able to put your CDs in a rack. You'd like them to be a standard size uh, because they'll make sense on the shelves. And there were there were long boxes, which were one early attempt at making CD packaging that would be the height of an LP so that you could put them in bins and, and look through them. And, and they would fit on your record shelves. But the bulk of CD packaging is dual case size and they fit in standardized cd shelves like the ones you see behind me but they're also really pretty durable they're cheap to make which means that you get to squeeze as much margin out of each cd that you manufacture as possible but also they don't break easily uh, if you if you have digipacks which are the, uh, if you don't know what a digipack is, it has a plastic liner, but then a cardboard sleeve on the outside that folds open. And uh, these kind of look cheaper than a jewel case, but 
less plasticky. In fact, they're more expensive to make. But the reason that labels don't really like them is that once you've shipped them to a retailer, they will almost certainly be too badly damaged for you to accept them as returns and resell them. Because once they've been shelved, they've been picked up, they get dented. Right, because the jewel case has hard edges. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought Absolutely. of that. And you can refurb a jewel case. So if Yeah, you can pull the, the liners out of it. You can. I remember when I first learned this back in the early 90s, you, you, if you pry it up just right, you don't break it, and you pull off the bit that, with the spider that holds the CD, and you've got your liner notes in the other side, and you can, as you say, repurpose them and put other CDs in them. Absolutely. And there are companies that will replace the jewel cases and rewrap discs that have been damaged so that they're ready to sell again for between 10 and 25 cents a unit like it's it's really quite economical whereas if you get a digipack back there's nothing you can do you can't recycle any part of that the, the cardboard thing is glued to the plastic thing you can't separate them and use either of them if the plastic's broken or the cardboard's dented that's it that product's done you can reuse the disc but it's usually not economical to do that well, you can recycle in the sense of pulling the cardboard off and putting it with your paper goods and putting the plastic in with plastic. The, the plastic That's might right. not be widely recycled, as they say here. But if you have a lot of digipacks, it takes a long time to rip them apart like that. And so if you're a label, a digipack is both more expensive to make in the short term, but also a more expensive prospect in the long term because it creates problems for inventory management. The other problem is that they're often thicker, which means you can't get as many in a carton. CDs come in boxes of 25, uh, but if you can only get 21 in a box, that affects the number of uh, what they call quarter boxes, 25 boxes that you can get in a whole box. You can no longer get 100 discs in a full box, which means that there's a limit to how many you can put on a, uh, on a pallet. I'm holding up two CDs on the left for you guys is a jewel case. On the right is a digipack. I'd say it's a millimeter thinner, the digipack, but not much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that one is thinner. Um, yeah, sometimes sometimes they're thicker. It does depend. It depends on the size of the booklet Good point. that yeah. goes in there. On a jewel case, there's you have to use very thin paper if you want to put lots of pages in the booklet because you won't be able to get it shut. Yeah. But with a digipack, you can make it get thicker as the booklet gets thicker, which means that some digipacks are thick and some are thin. So you can, you can make the spine a little bit larger to put larger Absolutely. booklets in. There, there is other packaging, though, that allows for very large booklets to be included in CD packaging. For instance, some game packaging will have like these little... I don't know what they would be called. Uh, they're like little clamps or like little holders where you can actually stick a fairly large book in there. But that's, I don't think I've ever seen that for, for CDs or DVDs, just games. One thing that I've seen is jewel cases. So you'd have a jewel case and then a booklet on top of it and then a cardboard sleeve holding the whole thing together. So the booklet was not in the jewel case, right. but if it came out of the sleeve, then you'd lose the booklet and you'd lose the sleeve and you'd have the jewel case, which just had the CD and maybe, you know, the album artwork on the cover. Okay, now that, that cardboard sleeve has a name. That cardboard sleeve is called an O-card because if you look at it from the end, it is in a kind of very condensed O profile and you can slide the CD in either end of it. And O-cards are quite useful from a marketing standpoint for several reasons firstly they allow you to distinguish your your discs as being somehow a little bit fancier 
for the extra cost of a, a few pence to put the O-card on. It gives you the opportunity to manufacture the, the whole jewel-cased product in one big long run and then make custom versions of it. So you could have different cover art in different markets, but you can also use it to break your own branding rules. So this is something that Naxos used to do uh, and probably still do to some extent. Um, they have very, very standard album art that is always in exactly the same format, but for the premium releases, the way they would get around their rule of never having the artist photo on the cover is they would do an O-card, put the ugly CD in the O-card, and then you could have the, the nice artist photo, the marketing-friendly image on the, on the front. I find it a bit ridiculous when the O-card has exactly the same image and isn't also adding the space to have a booklet. In that case, it's... What's the purpose of that? Oh, I used to hate that. That's what I, I really felt like I was getting cheated when they did that. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the reason that we do that is that uh, it costs us like nine pence to put it in a O-card, but we get to charge like three pounds more for it. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go any further, I just want to say that Doug mentioned early on Andy's video, and I'll put a link in the show notes. Andy goes through all the different types of CDs and shows how to open them. And it's not that simple to open some of these CDs. I remember I learned a trick when I was living in France with a jewel case. Do you know the chain in France, the FNAC, F-N-A-C, big retailer? And someone showed me this once. He had a, what would you call it, like a Formica desk where he worked. And he took the jewel case and he put it on an angle and just swiped it on the Formica and it just cut the, the, the plastic off on the edge and then you peel it off. And that was so practical. But now my desk has rounded edges so I can't even do that with jewel cases anymore. Yeah, well, now now that you can afford proper furniture, it doesn't work. It was it was great in the eighties when uh, both compact discs and Formica were all the rage. But uh, the 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 disadvantage with that method is that uh, once in every hundred times you will smash the CD on the desk and break the jewel case. Well, no, 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 you don't break the jewel case. You break the hinge part. So that means when you open the jewel case, it falls off, and basically you have to cannibalize another jewel case. That is. That is the that is the worst thing to happen to a jewel case. Then you, you, and you take it off the shelf and you think, oh, this one's all right. And then you and open it, it and then it falls yeah. apart. And you can't fix it. Yeah, you, I hate you that. can't fix it. In fact, what you might have to do is go to your box of broken CD cases. Yeah, find one that still had the hinges. Yeah, because and then transfer. Because everybody has yeah. a box of broken CD. I'm cases pretty sure this. everybody does. The one thing I hated about jewel boxes was when the spiders broke when the little bits of the spiders came out and the CDs wouldn't stay stuck in anymore. So you'd open a CD case and the CD would fall on the floor. Yeah, no, that's horrible too. Uh, and that's the, the multi-disc boxes are particularly vulnerable to that yeah. because the plastic has yep. to be so thin. And, you know, once you've broken one of those, that's your whole, that's your whole box set ruined. Because you, <laughs> right. you don't have one of those in your box of broken bits unless you work at a radio station. Well, I remember, I remember buying some box set jewel cases at one point to replace the ones i had whatever that brand of stuff is over here that sells cd cases and portfolios and all they sold jewel cases this this podcast really has become a safe space for utter music collector nerdery isn't it? <laughs> yep but it's good all right it. well let's let, let's move on from single cds to box sets because the box set is interesting in some cases i'm looking behind you to the right there's a virgin box set if i remember those are two multi-disc 
jewel cases with a sort of an O card, but it's an O card with a flap that closes behind it. That's EMI. The one on, on the third shelf down from the top? That one. Yeah. Yeah. Norrington's Beethoven. I had the same one. And the problem with those, it's like an O card, but it's got a bit that closes on the back and they get really loose and scruffy and then they fall apart and then you drop the boxes out, you break the hinges, you break the spiders and then you buy those CD sleeves to put your CDs in afterwards. Yeah, and, and these, these boxes, the O-card that's closed at one end looks very smart when it's all shrink-wrapped on a shelf. But uh, once you've taken the CD out and put the CD back in again a couple of times, the, the spine that faces outwards that looks all nice uh, gets kind of opened and once that's opened it never goes back in and the flappy thing is in the way of the cd as it goes back in and the box gets shredded which is not the end of the world because what you've got is two jewel cases inside two double jewel cases inside with a volume one and a volume two but it's it's hardly a piece of premium well product. that was a pretty that was a pretty cheap set to be but fair none of this stuff is the whole the whole thing is an exercise in selling more music to it's a way of getting people to pay more in part for music they already have and in part for music they would not otherwise buy and that's what the whole box set business is about. okay so let, let's start with the small box sets here i have bob dylan's rolling thunder review box set i believe it's 14 cds three of them are in sleeves and the rest are in digipacks single digipacks so this is your standard digipack. Oh, no, no. Oh, these, I hate these. This isn't a digipack. These are these CD sleeves where you have to pull the CD out of the middle. And how can you pull the CD out without ripping the bit, right? So it's like two sleeves that are opened to the middle of the thing and not to the outside. I don't know. I don't mind those because it is at least an all cardboard thing. True. And I don't really, I, I don't, like, it's like a miniature version of a CD gatefold of a, sorry, an LP, a gatefold LP case. And I'm quite fond of those because, because they're all cardboard, they don't break, they tend to be quite compact. I don't feel like I'm doing something awful to the environment because the whole thing is recyclable, uh, except the, the disc, obviously. And they, they feel nice. They don't, they don't snap apart, like the equivalent size bit of... Yeah, they don't feel like plastic. Yeah. And so a few of the discs are in the single sleeves, and these are the nice sleeves. These are the hard ones. If you know the sort of original jacket collection that Sony's released oh, yeah. uh, for a number them. of artists, they're really solid sleeves. They don't have any give to them. And you pick it up, and it feels like there's meat. And the CDs come out easily. They go back easily. It's well-printed. You've got good artwork. That's something I definitely like a lot. What have you got there, Andy? We'll put links in the show notes so you can look up some of these sets that we're talking about. Uh, this is... Uh, uh similar it's in the vein of the uh, sony original jackets collection this is the the beach boys u.s singles collection uh which comes in a box that is uh it's red and red and orange cardboard with a real wood veneer stripe around the middle it's got a that's your that's your real walnut dashboard there and inside it's got all of the beach boys singles and they are cd miniature reproductions of their original jackets of the original artwork yeah and, and I, yeah I, no i like those those are the ones i like most and again this this whole thing there's there's no plastic in here uh and it feels yeah. it feels solid except feels for the good. cds and uh, there's there's a book in here i don't think i've ever even opened the book but it's a, it's a nice thing it's a satisfying object and 
you know, this well, and so that's the point of the box set. The box set has become not something that just collects a bunch of music, but something that is a nice thing to try to get people to buy music that they wouldn't otherwise buy. Well, it also looks nice. I mean, if you're if you're a Beach Boys fan, that would look great just sitting out in front, you know, in front of maybe an album display or something. I mean, it's just would look nice in the house. If you're a Beach Boys fan, I must emphasize. <laughs> and this is this is this is sixteen. 16 discs, 16 singles, so a bunch of B-sides, but 16 singles. That would fit on one single CD. That you can sell for, for $50 because it's a, it's a collectible thing, and it's, it's a clever way of remarketing. A bunch of music which any Beach Boys fan will already own because their catalogue's just not that big. Yeah, that's true. That's like getting all the music of Cream. You can't really go very far and you just get a bunch of... Or, or everything ever recorded by Derek and the Dominoes. Yeah, but, but you can package that in a way that a fan of the band will really want to have it. And, and that's becoming an increasingly large part of music marketing in the age of streaming. Right? If I've got a, a Spotify account or an Apple Music account, I can hear basically anything anyway. If you want me to part with my money, then you have to make a thing that I want to have in my house. And you know, the, the vast majority of these discs behind me, I, I've never listened to. I may never listen to. But it's like owning a library of books you might want to one day look something up in. Like that Oxford English Dictionary that you have. Absolutely, which was very generously given to me by a very dear friend. But the box set now has become something that there, I was explaining to Doug earlier. In classical music, there are two kinds of box sets. You get the one, everything an artist has recorded. And so, for instance, you've got Glenn Gould, right, that's been repackaged six times into the complete Glenn Gould. Alfred Brendel, one of my favorite pianists. I've got that box set. I love it. But an interesting one is Murray Pariah. Sony released a box set of his first 40 years because he was going to Deutsche Grammophon after that. So his albums after the box set were on a different label. So they were able to put all this together, which is fine for someone who likes that kind of stuff and who wants to collect it. But the box set in classical music has a number of reasons that are beyond just collecting the music. It's really re-exploiting back catalog that's been exploited ad infinitum. Absolutely. And, and so when you look at, uh, this is particularly true in classical music where a publishing situation is is a little simpler. Um, you can sometimes see box sets that are sold at what what seems like an absurdly low price per disc. You know, on the one like hand, like a dollar a disc. Yeah, yeah, right. So on on the one hand, you have the the Beach Boys box, which is a bunch of singles repackaged in a way that's kind of absurdly expensive way to buy that music. On the other hand, you could get these these complete Bach, complete Mozart, complete Beethoven box sets now, digital box sets now, which are, yeah, dollar a disc. And you wonder how can it, how can it be economical to manufacture this at the price at which it's being sold? You know, I have a question for you. How can it be economical to manufacture those box sets at the price at which they're being sold? That's an excellent question, Kirk, and I'm glad you asked it. So the way that it's, it's possible to sell a box set for less than a dollar a disc is that it costs considerably less than a dollar to press a CD. A, a lot of the manufacturing cost goes into the booklet, the piece of paper that go in the jewel case or the digipack, or all of that stuff. Pressing the disc, if it's a standard CD, is really very inexpensive, particularly if you're buying in, in reasonable bulk. And the, the steps by which it gets cheaper are kind of like if... 
if you're getting 100, 200, 300, it's not really worth creating the glass master and the stampers and you're better off just burning the CDs in a, in a bulk burning machine. After about 300 units, it becomes economical to, to stamp them out on a CD press, but you've kind of amortized out the, the cost of setting all that up by the time you're at two, three, four thousand units. So there's a kind of big, big reduction in cost around 100 units, around 2000 units, and then it doesn't get a lot cheaper at 10,000 units, 20,000 units. But if you want a million of them, then suddenly again, it becomes, you know, you're booking out the factory for a week, you're doing it in advance. It's, it becomes, it becomes again, a, a huge amount cheaper. I was going to ask you why sometimes these box sets of classical music are sold as limited editions around 3000 units. It's basically because they've gotten it as cheap as possible. They know they're not going to sell 10,000. So they make it at the point where it's as cheap as possible per disc and basta. That's right. It wouldn't be economical to do a limited edition of 500 units, but uh, and they know they can't sell 10, 20, 30,000, but they can be fairly confident around 3,000. And that's the point at which the per unit price is, is stabilized at something affordable. So, yeah, that's that's a common kind of volume for a box set. And you'll see these things come out around Christmas time when uh, or just before Christmas, fourth quarter, when people are buying them as gifts. Because you can't give somebody a, a digital product in, in the same way. You can't wrap it up and hand it over to them. And so box sets are a, a, a common gift for the music lover. That's one of the things that we were, we were talking about earlier, to come back to that. We, we miss the packaging. For instance, you're not going to get any fur-covered streams. You, you're not going to get any, you know, you're not going to get the sandpaper-covered streams. You're just going to get the music. Are are we missing something because we don't have that tangible thing? I mean, you do if you buy box sets, and I guess that's the only place you're really going to see, you know, any kind of advantage being taken of. You know, are we missing something? What's You and I have talked, we've all talked about liner notes and metadata and things like that. That stuff is missing. And artwork. And artwork, yeah. yeah. But this is this is really central to all of the changes that are occurring in physical music distribution today that used to be that if you wanted a if you wanted to listen to a song listen to an album the best way to do it by far was to get it on cd you could listen to the cd in your car it was relatively durable it was really very high quality audio it was relatively portable it was relatively inexpensive and so and and it was a thing that you could you could hold on to and and you could make it look pretty and you could you could make it fairly deluxe you could make it fairly fairly uh basic and and so cd was was the thing cd was the thing for people who wanted to own and collect music and cd was the thing for people who didn't care about that and they just wanted the damn music but now people who just want the damn music are on spotify and apple music and people who want to collect the thing have a greater range of choice. And so more and more we're seeing that physical music products are being aimed at the people who want the thing. Which means you have all this vinyl being sold that never gets listened to. Because the people who bought the vinyl have put it on their wall or put it on their shelves. And then they're, they're listening on their phone to the digital download that may have come with the, 
the vinyl or they've got a streaming subscription because they're the kind of people that spend all this money on vinyl. You don't have to buy many vinyl records before that's a year's streaming subscription. So those kinds of fans, they already have access to the music. What they're buying is the thing. They're buying all of the Beach Boy singles that they already have, but in a nice box. So they're buying the vinyl record that they can put on their shelf and admire the lovely artwork on a, on a grander scale. One thing I wanted to mention earlier, we were talking about the classical box set of an artist, and this could be an orchestra, a soloist, a singer, whatever. But there's another kind of classical box set. Universal's been doing some interesting things with this. You, you mentioned earlier the complete Mozart and the complete Bach. There is an editorial process in choosing which works go in these. And instead of having Glenn Gould's six Bach partitas, they have Bach partitas by two or three or six different performers. And they're giving you a broader picture of the music. Now, I've bought the Mozart and the Bach, and I'll buy the Beethoven, because I like that approach of being able to put on a disc and getting this music by different performers with different styles, even on different instruments. Yeah, and that is absolutely 100% not why they did that. Is it? Yeah, so their, their editorial perspective would be, all right, well, what is the best recording of, of this Bach? Well, you know, this Glenn Gould has done it, and everyone knows that Glenn Gould is, is the dude. So, you know, at Sony, that is the accepted wisdom. So, so of course, you do the Glenn Gould, you put Yo-Yo Ma on it, and you do, you do all of their top-line artists. But all of those top-line artists are on a higher royalty rate than the rest of their artists. All of those records are records which somebody who buys their complete Bark box set might also buy those recordings of and would not buy those recordings of if they were contained within the box set. So what they're doing is they're exploiting the... There's a tier of their catalogue which they can... They can exploit without... They can include on box sets without really undermining the sales of first-choice artist recordings. A lot of the stuff is A-listers, but definitely not a majority of them. Yeah, absolutely. And often, they've got no choice. If anything, you could look at these box sets as samplers that you'll listen to a bunch of performers that you weren't familiar with. You'll say, ooh, I like the way he did the fifth partita. I want to buy all six of them, or stream all six Right, of and them. That's, that's a nice way of looking at it. And it, it also means that uh, by breaking up albums, if somebody's, if somebody's recorded all the partitas and you're including a partita from each person's complete set, then it means that you are not replacing the sale of any one of those discs. And potentially you're, you're using this as a kind of a marketing sampler, which is a fascinating way to consider a $150 box set. One other thing, though, is that these universal box sets, the Mozart, the Bach, and the Beethoven, have music from labels that are not universal labels. They have maybe 20 or 30 record labels represented. Some of them are the small, like in the box, some of the small French and Belgian labels, uh, which Universal doesn't own, that they've licensed. They have things from BIS Records, the Swedish label. So are they getting cheaper licensing deals than what it would cost, perhaps, to pay the royalties of the A-listers? Often what's going on there is that they've gone to these labels to fill in gaps in the catalogue where they don't have their own recordings of this work or this work. And it's a very different prospect to market the complete Mozart to all of the Mozart that we have on Deutsche Grammophon that we can repurpose because we have those 
particular rights in the contract dot com like that and and often you see in the titles of box sets a, a few clues as to the contractual situation behind them like uh Murray Pariah the first forty years um or or you know who, whoever it well, is Murray Pariah wasn't the, dead yet the capital years the yeah and yeah. And it's it's because this is the stuff that we can put out without anybody's permission, or this is the stuff that we can put out without paying too much money. And when somebody's putting trying to put together a complete box set, they don't have the option to do that. So then they have to shop around. But if Universal come to you and say, "Look, are we doing a complete Mozart?" We noticed that uh, you, for some reason, recorded the uh, the "Kiss My Ass." canon and uh, we would like to include that on glass harmonica yeah and, and we would like to license it from you you can say well your your box set is absolutely sunk without it and so my my fee is high because i had the foresight to record mozart's dirty song and their response will be well unfortunately you're not the only person to have recorded mozart's dirty song and so so then there's a bidding war and the price is only going downwards um, so, so we, it's, it's a reverse auction. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And you're never gonna you're never gonna get more money than it would cost for them just to make a new recording. And they know how to make a recording cheaply if they really need one. Yeah. Well, in any case, I like this approach to these box sets, even if there is a uh, a marketing aspect or, or a financial aspect behind it. I like what it gives me, and because I'm pretty much not buying classical cds anymore because i'm using streaming so much and these are getting me to buy some big classical box sets the only other things i buy are specific artists that i really like and tell me why have they not released a complete dietrich fischer discal at least the stuff that's on the universal labels uh, it may be that they don't think that they can sell the volume that they would need to make it economical it may be that they are waiting for the time to do it it may be that they have the whole thing planned out and they're just waiting for the right year for the the, yeah the the marketing opportunity um often catalog marketing departments love they love anniversaries you know it's the 250th of this we're putting 30 discs of bernstein together for the 30th anniversary of his death or whatever like they they love this because it's it's easy. And you know, in radio programming, classical radio programming is absolutely rife with this kind of nonsense. But um there are also there are also times when the reason that they haven't done the box set is because his contract is worded in such a way that it's not economical to do it because they have to give him you know, if, if they have to give him ten cents a disc plus twenty five percent, then the box set's never going to happen unless they can renegotiate. And sometimes there's no one to renegotiate with. I have a feeling we're going to see it in the year 2025. It will be the 100th anniversary of his birth. If CDs still exist, then. <laughs> see, that makes sense. They maybe have yeah. to grind out music pills of the collection. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Andy, thanks very much. This has been very enlightening. <laughs> Thank you. Time now to tell you about our next tracks. That's music that we're currently interested in listening to. Kirk, what have you got this week? I'll put a link in the show notes to an article I wrote about the 
coming breakup of iTunes, how iTunes has been split into four apps, music, TV, books, and podcasts. And we've talked about this a few times, but I wrote an article recently after having worked with the music app for a while. And one of the really disappointing things is that the column browser is going away. And in my article, my example was I used the column browser because let's say I want to listen to some Schubert piano sonatas. I go to the correct genre, then I pick Schubert, and then I see all of my Schubert albums in a very concise view. Uh, now I would have to go into album view where I think we did a test, Doug and I, you can get about 15 albums. No matter how big your display is, the album art just gets bigger. And it's really bad for scanning. So the reason I use this as an example is because I've been on a Schubert kick lately. I've been listening to a lot of different performers of Schubert's piano sonatas. I love Schubert. I've mentioned before that if the world could only have one composer, it would have to be Franz Schubert. One of the ones that I really like that I never gave enough listens to that I've been listening several times is a box set of eight CDs by Mitsuko Uchida on Decca. It's really cheap, 35 bucks for eight CDs. You know, as we were talking about earlier, you don't pay a lot for this. That's like the you would have paid that for three individual CDs when they came out. I particularly like her style of playing. She, she's not forceful like, for instance, Radolupu, who did four CDs of Schubert, who gets really heavy into the Sturm und Drang type sound. She's a lot more, she has slower tempi as well. I think that she sort of sculpts the musical phrasing more efficiently than a lot of other pianists. One of my favorite pianists with Schubert is Alfred Brendel, but Alfred Brendel commits the cardinal sin of not playing the repeat in the B minor sonata. Now, if you know the B minor sonata, you know why this is a problem, because the first movement is like 20-odd minutes long, and Alfred Brendel thinks it's too long, so you shouldn't play it. In any case, I really like these discs by Mitsuko Uchida, and if you're a Schubert fan, you should really check them out. Doug, what about you? The other day I read that uh, Ray and Dave Davis are getting back together in the recording studio to record some new Kinks music which I don't have high hopes for being very good, but that's okay. Um, but it did get me thinking about the Kinks, and I, I, I think they're one of the, the most underrated pop rock bands, um, at least in the United States. I don't know how things are in the UK, and I know the Kinks are, of course, the, the prototype for a lot of uh, you know punk and new wave stuff, but I went back even earlier. Um, I grabbed an album on Apple Music called The Kinks, The Anthology, 1964 to 1971, and I listened to it chronologically. And some of their earlier stuff is no different from any of that guitar combo 60s music. I mean, you if you didn't know any better, you, you could not distinguish early Beatles from early Rolling Stones from early Kinks or from... You know, the Dave Clark Five and Jerry and the Pacemakers, all that combo, that guitar combo sound. And early on, the Kinks are doing the same thing. And it was really fun to listen to this. And you start to hear other songs that have like a little kink in it. Like, you know, I mean, we all know their their early stuff is kind of, uh, you know, uh, all day and all the night and that stuff. But once you get into the later 60s, you start hearing... Ray Davis started to do some very interesting things, and by the time they get to Arthur and uh, Village Green Preservation Society, they've kind of got this funny sound, and that funny kink sound. And it's really interesting because it seems to me that the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, and even the kinks now, they all seem to start from the same place, but they diverged somewhere in that 60s era, somewhere around the time of 1967, around the time of Revolver. Um, 
the kinks also started to go in a different place. They started doing more music hall kinds of things and more, you know, Ray started doing more uh, operatic sort of, of, of pieces rather than just doing singles. And it was really fun to listen to that as I listened to the album. I really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a five-disc uh, compilation. So there's lots of music on it. There's lots of alternate takes. Um, there are a few radio commercials on it. Uh, marketing their tours and their albums and stuff like that. Those were a kick to listen to. Uh, so it was really interesting to listen to the early Kinks, which is a part of the uh, a part of their um, their repertoire. I don't really know very well. I kind of pick up with the Kinks in the early '70s and and later, which is when I think they did their best stuff in the '70s and the '80s. Um, but this was a lot of fun to listen to. It's the Kinks, the anthology, 1964 to 1971, and it's my next track. This was episode number 157 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, and we hope you do, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell your friends about us. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.